Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Let me introduce to you uh, Imam Zaid Shakar, who we are really honored to have with us here today. He's an amazing speaker, and he's an amazing Muslim American leader. Not only is he the co-founder, chairman of the board, and senior faculty member of Zaytuna College, which is located in Berkeley, California, which I would love to share with you today, 25 days ago received its accreditation on March 4th and became the first Muslim college to be accredited in the United States of America. Sayyid Hussein Nasser, who many of you know, likens Zaytuna College to Harvard and Yale because both of those institutions were established to provide ethical and spiritual vision in which educational exercises could take place. Notice that, that uh, setup, right? Not an educational institution and then we'll have religion and morality on the side, but no, it's an ethical and spiritual vision in which educational exercises can be conducted. And this is what Zaytuna has allowed for the Muslims of America to actually engage in at the highest levels of academic work. So he has been fundamental to the success and the progress of this Muslim first. And we're really honored to recognize his work and to have him here with us. Indeed, he is committed to bringing a sound understanding of the religion of Islam and to bring its goodness forward, at the center of which is a deep love and respect for the Holy Prophet We've got more to go. Now, he is amongst the most respected and influential Islamic scholars here in the West. And on his blog, you can see his response to all manner of issues related to Muslims and Islam. And you should be up to date with the responses and the, and the issues that are current. But he doesn't only just write blog posts. He does it in poetry and prose. How about that? And that reflects his sensitive nature and his sincere approach as a scholar. Because, of course, poetry is about the heart, isn't it? And this is how he also teaches. Now, Imam Shafir came of age during the civil rights struggles, and he has brought both sensitivity and understanding to the issues of race and poverty and scholarly discipline to his faith-based work. Now, Dr. Cornell West, who's a very significant figure at Princeton University, he says about Imam Zay Shafir that he's one of the towering principal voices, not only in contemporary Islam, but indeed in American society. And he was born in Berkeley, California, and has now returned with Zaytuna to lead it in Berkeley, California. But I want you to realize that he is, uh, again, an alum, uh, an alumni of Rutgers. So he's returned home and away today as well. And Rutgers welcomes both its alumni back to see what this university has produced, these great servants of humanity. And so you should be proud, Rutgers students and Rutgers University, for the quality that you have produced here. Now, Imam Zay Shaka became Muslim in 1977 while serving in the United States Air Force. And he obtained a bachelor's uh, with honors in international relations at American University in DC. And later he earned his MA here at Rutgers in political science. Now, while he was at Rutgers, he led a lot of campaigns to bring the Muslim community forward, and including a campaign to divest from South Africa. He co-founded the New Brunswick Islamic Center, which was formerly called Masjid al-Huda. And I was speaking with his beautiful wife, Sadaha, earlier, and she reminded me that all of that work was done in 
the age before the internet and on nickels and dimes with the hard work and effort of people on the ground. So today we have so many more resources available to us, so much more ways of getting information out there and conveying a message. So we have no excuse. If Imam Zayn Shafiq can establish what he did and go to the heights he has by the grace and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, indeed he's a wonderful example for us. So I want you to know that he teaches that Islam is not a religion of empty laws and strictures, but one which points towards a higher ethical order. And those are his words from an article he writ had written about marriage and Islam in ML magazine. So please welcome him with the loudest of Statisticians would say that's statistically insignificant, uh, even though it garners so much coverage and distortion in the news. But what are the other 10 million doing? They're serving as, as doctors to help heal the sick, as engineers to help to build and construct, as good neighbors working to establish safe and sound neighborhoods all over this country. And I think if that's not a testimony to the peaceful nature of Islam, if Islam is somehow inherently violent, then I think 10 million Muslims have totally misunderstood the message of our own religion. Either that's the case or someone else is intentionally distorting the message of our religion for nefarious ends. 
So I think you all deserve uh, a great round of applause for being Muslims for peace. So give yourselves a nice hand. Very uh, briefly, uh, I think, first of all, I'd like to kind of rephrase the title of the program, What Would the Prophet Say, to, to move it from the realm of the hypothetical to the realm of the real. What did the Prophet say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? One of the things he said, Muhammad Wali Back. <laughs> 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 I'm not jumping off the stage. <laughs> uh, so one of the things our Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi and is foundational in our religion is do no harm. And we've heard that expression before, do no harm. The words he said it in Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, there's no harm and there's no reciprocating harm. So if you can't initiate or you can't reciprocate harm that's done to you, then indeed do no harm. And this is a message we have to internalize. We have to internalize it as Muslims. We have to internalize it as Americans. Do no harm. Uh, because there are indeed, there are Muslims in some places that are doing harm and unfortunately, most of that harm accrues to other Muslims, unfortunately. And there are Americans that are doing harm. If we talk about ISIS, I salute our president, Barack Hussein Obama, for, for mentioning two weeks ago that ISIS is a consequence of the American invasion and occupation of Iraq. Because we went into that country and we did a lot of harm. And so as Americans, we have to internalize and reflect and live that message, do no harm. Because we have the potential to do a lot of good, both as a nation, in terms of the resources that we possess, and in terms of the historical spirit of this nation. Of this nation. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a conflicted spirit. It's, it's a spirit that indeed, and we don't like to talk about it, and I'm not going to talk about it after these couple of sentences, because we're here to talk about the Prophet But we don't like to talk about what happened to the native people. Now here in New Jersey we have hundreds of towns with native names, but we don't find any native people. They've been wiped out. We don't like to talk about slavery. So much so that in some of our states, the textbooks are being rewritten and slavery is being written out of the history. We don't like to talk about the, the prejudices that led to the Chinese Exclusion Act in the latter 19th century. We don't like to talk about the campaign, similar to the campaign directed at Muslims right now that culminated in the internment of Japanese during the Second World War and internment camps throughout the western part of this country. We don't like to talk about Jim Crow. And we don't like to talk about some of the realities that were mentioned by uh, the Reverend in terms of the, the dynamics in the inner city and the, the miseducation of our youth. 
and the, 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 the police shootings and killings. We like to sweep it under the rug. We have to talk about these things. If we're going to be whole as a nation and if we're going to carry forth the spirit that produced emancipation, the eradication of slavery, that produced the elimination of Jim Crow that some people would like to bring back, that produced equal opportunity, that produced the reforms, that produced the Peace Corps, that produced all of the great things that America has given to the world. And so we're at a crossroads where we have to really deep, dig deep down inside of ourselves to determine which of these two Americas are we going to work to share with the world. And which of the manifestations of Islam is Muslims. I say it's the manifestation, not, not misrepresentations, not uh, appeals to, to wanton violence, that are given a veneer of Islamicity by referring to some verse in Quran or some saying of the Prophet ﷺ, but the Islam, the Islam is an Islam of love. It's an Islam of love. Then la yu'minu ahadukum hatta yuhibba li ma yuhibbu li nafsi. No one of you truly believes until he loves for his brother or sister what he loves for himself or herself. This is foundational to our belief. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I love for my brother and my sister? And, and our exegetes say, not just your brother and sister in Islam, your brother and sister in humanity, what I love for myself. Isn't that the golden rule? The foundation of our families is love. Amongst his signs, the Quran tells us, God tells us in the Quran, is that he's created for you from yourselves spouses in order that you live together with them in peace and tranquility and he's made between you love and mercy surely in this are signs for people who reflect the foundation of our community all of us not just the Shi'i, not just the Sunni, all of us is love and mercy our Prophet tells us the likeness, the parable of the believers and he didn't say Methulun Muslim and Mu'minina Sunniyin, Methulun Muslimina, as Shia, Methulun Mu'minina, the likeness of the believers, Fito Wedihim, and their mutual love, Watarahumihim, and their mutual mercy, Watarahatufihim, Methulun Jasad, and their mutual affection is like a single body. If one part of that body complains of an injury, the entire body rallies its various parts with, with fever and sleeplessness. That's the body. If the body is hurting, our first question shouldn't be as a doctor, if someone's hurting and they come to us, our first question shouldn't be, how are you going to pay? If someone's suffering some injustice as a lawyer, our first question shouldn't be, how much justice can you afford? 
If you're wealthy, you can afford a lot of justice. If you're poor, you get the public defender. And you don't get very much justice. You get an offer of, of, of how you can plea out, even though you haven't done anything, and the lawyer knows you're innocent. But it says, listen, if you go to trial, you're going to do everything to make sure you lose. You're going to get 20 years. Just say you did this, and they'll give you two years, and you get one month off on probation, and you'll be out in a year. Just take the plea. That's how much justice poor people can afford. They can't afford the dream team, like OJ. Right? No. And as a believer, the first question shouldn't be, what kind of Muslim are you? Are you a, are you a Salafi? Are you a Sufi? Are you a Shi'i? Are you a Sunni? Because the Prophet didn't, he didn't, he didn't affix those adjectives to the unconditional nature of the love and mercy that believers should share with each other. He said the likeness of the believers and their mutual love, their mutual mercy, their mutual affection. And with the body cries out in Iraq, it shouldn't be, are they Sunni or Shia? Are they Muslims and are they hurting? And can I do something to alleviate the pain? That should be the question and that should be the response. Because love, if love is not unconditional, it's not love. It's the servant of our narrow agendas. Did I say that right, Reverend? That's why love, if it's not unconditional, then it's a bastardized servant of someone's agenda. Love respects no agenda. And that's why it's such a powerful force in the world. Because it calls us to something higher than what we might produce if left to our own devices. Mercy is not a servant to an agenda. Because it calls us to a principle that's higher than something we might be a prisoner to if we're left to our own devices. And our prophet taught us, the first saying we learn as students, al-hadith al-musalsal bil-awwaliyya, the first, the traditionally first given hadith. Ar-rahimuna yarhamuhum ar-rahman, irhamu man fil-ark, yarhamuhum man fi samaa. The merciful people are those the all-merciful will be merciful to. Be merciful to the denizens of the earth and Almighty God will be merciful to you. Be merciful to the people of the earth. Last night by Sheikh Amin. Because it reminds us that this affair is all about mercy. And knowledge is a servant of mercy. And if the student doesn't understand that, he or she will become an arrogant, conceited, I can't say it in front of a religious audience, what comes next, who's only interested in their own aggrandizement. And that has nothing to do with what a religious scholar should be about. The merciful people are those the all merciful will have mercy on. 
Our Prophet ﷺ was constantly reminding us himself, I'm a gift and mercy to the world. You are not into paradise until you are merciful to each other. And hearing that, the companions in his presence, they responded, All of us are merciful, O Messenger of Allah. And he understood what they meant. He said, It's not the mercy one of you shows to those closest to him or her. It's easy to be merciful to your husband or your wife, your spouse. It's easy to be merciful to your children. It should be easy to, easy to be merciful to your parents. Some of us are challenged in all of those regards. It's easy to be merciful to your neighbor. You know them. You have bonds, relations with them. It's easy to be merciful to those who share your particular orientation. He said, I'm not talking about that. That's the easy part. It's not the mercy of Qasata. What I'm talking about is the mercy to the generality of humanity, the mercy to the general public. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what we were called to pull ourselves up to as Muslims, to pull, out, pull ourselves up to that standard. And to be a mercy to the, to the worlds as he was. To be a mercy to the starfish, the beautiful story and it's so profound. But I was just reflecting on the west coast where I live, Oakland, California, up and down the west coast from Alaska to Baja, California. The starfish are disintegrating. They're finding them dismembered on the beaches. You can't throw the starfish back, you grab one arm, and if it doesn't melt in your hands, you just throw an arm back now. Where's the mercy to the environment? Where's the mercy to the generality of people? Where's the mercy to the suffering and the oppressed? Muslims, unfortunately, and it was referenced, the, the, the tragic killing of Diyat Barakat and Razan and her sister. Terrible tragedy. And in the aftermath of that, we got Muslim Lives Matter. We understand the sentiment. But Muslims should have been rallying behind Black Lives Matter. Muslims, world Muslims, in the 1880s and 90s, 1910s, up to Emmett Till, when upwards to 10,000 people were lynched in this country for nothing other than the color of their skins. You know, where were Muslims when Tamir Rice, 12-year-old, gunned down in Cleveland? Oscar Grant, handcuffed, face down, gunned down in Oakland. Gary King, three blocks from our masjid in Oakland, tased, gunned down, said he had a gun, forced to strip down to almost his underwear, no weapon, but when he shot in the back after being tased, he was a threat. Alan Buford in Oakland, California, cop because when he's with his friends and the cops pull up, he knows the likely outcome, he starts running, he's chased down and then shot. Sean Bell here in New York City. Marley 
Graham in New York City, chased into his own house and murdered in his bathroom. Where were the Muslims? All lives should matter. All lives should be precious. All people should have a right to life. As the, our reciter recited, من أجل ذلك كتبنا على بني إسرائيل أنه من قتل نفسا بنفس أو بغير أنما أن أنه من قتل نفسا بغير نفس أو فساد في الأرض فكأنما قتل الناس جميعا ومن أحياها فكأنما أحيا الناس جميعا. If you take a life, an innocent life, it's as if all humanity has been killed, which makes these terrorist attacks is so unacceptable and unsanctioned in our religion. Fakhruddin al-Razi says concerning this verse, مَنْ قَتَلَ نَفْسًا بِغَيْرِ نَفْسًا وَفَسَادٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَكَأَنْمَا قَتَلَ النَّاسَ جَمِيعًا He says why? Because when a person decides they're going to take an innocent life, they've issued a ruling that makes the life of anyone on the face of this earth lawful. When, when these people shot up the hotels in Mumbai several years ago, you and I could have been there on vacation. So when they decide, I'm just going to shoot indiscriminately, they've made my life lawful, they've made your life lawful, they've made the little baby's life lawful. When someone goes into a mosque of someone they differ with on political grounds, it's not theological differences, they're political differences and then blows up, you and I could have been visiting that mosque and we would have perished. We would have perished. So they made our lives lawful. And this is an unacceptable condition. All of us, we have to work for peace. We have to work for justice. We have to work for mercy. And in working for justice, sometimes we have to accept an injustice. If it means not retaliating, if it means not engaging in a desperate act of retribution because there's not enough justice for me. And unless I take it and in taking it, I might endanger someone else's life. Then I'll renounce because at the end of the day, there's always going to be injustice in this world. Perfect justice is only with God. And this we're reminded of in the Quran, and I'll stop here because I know I probably went over the time, and the moderator is hesitant to pass that note forward. So I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to leave you to the good care of Dr. Rajabali. Allahumma salli rasulillah. Wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasneeman kathira. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Rasulillah. Kullu nafsin da'ikatul mawt. Everyone will experience that. Kullu nafsin da'ikatul mawt wa innama tuwafawnu ujurakum yawmal qiyamah. Every soul will experience death and you will be given your recompense in full on the day of resurrection. And one meaning of this we're told is that Perfect justice will only be in paradise. There's no perfect justice in this world. And we have to accept that. Because a lot of what we see in terms of the transgressions 
is undertaken in the name of pursuing justice and in the name of retribution. You wronged me, I wronged you. Then I'm going to wrong you. And it's justified. You killed my innocent people, we're going to kill your innocent people. Right? This is what the post-9-11 wars were all about, right? The initial name for the Afghani operation, infinite justice. And it was the advice of a Muslim that led to George Bush changing that name to another, another name. Infinite justice. And so in the name of infinite justice, how many Afghanis have died just this week? The report from uh, Not Human Rights Watch, one of the major or organizations, 1.2 million Iraqis, and they say this is a conservative estimate. Civilians have died, right? And in response to that, Qaeda, ISIS, we talk about them, what do they say? They've killed our civilian innocent people, we reserve a right to kill your innocent people. Now, at, at, at what point do we say, in a world with nuclear weapons, in a world that are developing electromagnetic weapons, force fields beam down from satellites in outer space to scramble the brains of whole populations. That's where it's headed. In a world of where we're unleashing not just aerial robots called drones, but they're developing armed land-based robot armies to be unleashed against unsuspecting people. At what place, point do we say it's madness? And if it means renouncing my claim to justice, I'll renounce my claim to justice, and I'll just wait to receive my justice from God. Because the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. And someone's going to have to be the bigger person. And this is what our Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is what he taught us. Itfa' in the Qur'an is what it teaches us. These are the days, itfa' billati hi ahsan. Good and evil are not equal. Respond to evil with good. Right? Respond to evil with good. One thing all of our parents taught us, at least those growing us in this country. I know Sister Nicole, your parents taught you, two wrongs don't make a right. Right? They pounded into our heads. Why'd you hit the little boy? Well, he hit me, mommy. Two wrongs don't make a right. Why'd you take his bicycle? He took my bicycle, so I took his bicycle. Two wrongs don't make a right. And this is what Allah Ta'ala is telling us in the Quran. Two wrongs don't make a right. Respond to wrong with right. Respond to vileness with goodness. And our Prophet explains this, وسلم, or the exegetes, the Quran commentators, they bring a hadith at this point. They say, Join relations with those who break relations with you. You could, you could rightfully break relations. They broke relations. 
They initiate it. I'm not talking to them until they talk to me. No, sunnan qata'a. Join relations with those who break them with you. Wa'ati man haramat. Give to those who deny you. Give to those who deny you. We're wealthy. We have it good now. We're not giving them anything. Why? Because when we were poor and suffering and struggling, they didn't give us anything. Aati man man haramat. Give to those who deny you. This is what our Prophet ﷺ is teaching us. Wa'afu And forgive those who oppress you. This is what it means, ahsan. And then what is the consequence? This either is called the of the unexpected consequence. You wouldn't expect that the one between you, between whom he and you, there was great enmity. Becomes as it were an intimate friend. As it were because the intimate friend is the one who's there from the beginning. This one was your enemy. He wasn't there at the beginning. She wasn't there at the, at the beginning. But as we say, Actions are based on the last. How are they at the end of the day? They might have been your enemy at the beginning of the day. But how are they at the end of the day? And this is something we should concern ourselves with brothers and sisters. How are we going to be at the end of the day? Are we going to be the people trapped in cycles of retribution? Are we going to be people who can only see the, within the blinders that's what they put on the horse to limit the horse's vision, right? They call them blinders. Are we going to be peoples who, whose vision is limited by the ideological or the sectarian blinders we've imposed upon ourselves? Are we going to remove those blinders so we can see the full awe and grandeur and beauty of Allah Ta'ala's creation? How are we going to be at the end of the day? And to what extent do we trust in God? If I let it go, then maybe they'll become more unjust. If they incline towards peace, then you so incline. Don't worry about, is it a stratagem? Are they just regrouping? Are they going to wait until we're weak and then they'll ambush us? Are they trying to gain our trust so we'll lower our guard? Don't worry about that. Leave that to Almighty God. Leave that to Allah Ta'ala. وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِذَا جَنْحُ لِسْلْمِ فَجْنَحْ لَهَا وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ Put your trust in Allah. Brothers and sisters, let us put our trust in Almighty God. Let us trust that God is more compassionate than we could ever be. That God is more merciful than we can ever be. That God has the power to affect outcomes that we could never affect. Let us trust in God and pray to God that we can be part of a saner, safer, and more peaceful world. Salaam alaikum.